Hello and welcome to a new episode of SIS Masters Podcast. I'm Arnaud Trichard, founder of Sports Innovation Society, and I interview for you some of the best experts in the sports industry. Today I welcome Ben Valentin, Senior VP of Strategy and Analytics for Fox Sports. Ben has a fantastic experience in fans, understanding the fans. He has just launched the book Fans Have More Friends. No surprise, we will speak about fandom, the fan triggers, and the benefits of being a fan in sports, social engine of collectiveness. Hi, Ben. How are you today? All good in Los Angeles. Everything is great in Los Angeles. I'm happy to be here. What did you think about the fan, the fans that went to the LAFC game? Oh, they, were un- they were unbelievable. Uh, I'm an I'm a LAFC fan. I was happy to see them. I was unfortunately out of town. So I couldn't go to the go to the match myself, but um, I've worked a lot with some of those fan groups, and they're just—I think they're the best fans in the MLS. Um, and MLS fans in general are—they set themselves apart. So uh, I think we can paint with a pretty broad brush there. But the LFC, LAFC folks are are fantastic, and it was yeah, a, it was a phenomenal game too. That that helped. That helped a lot of drama. <laughs> okay, um, before we speak about your book called "Fans Have More Friends," let's learn a bit more about yourself. Um, how was your first connection to sport? Um, you mean personally or professionally? Yeah, personally. Uh, personally, I you know I go I go kind of way back. I, I grew up um, in Colorado, um, just outside of Boulder, Colorado, and uh, in 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 sort of Denver and Colorado in general, um, the Denver Broncos are are the team, right? Um, and in fact, when when I was growing up, when I was you know uh, I think I was eleven when. Um, the professional baseball team arrived to Denver and I was maybe 15 when the professional hockey team arrived in Denver. So it was really about the, the Broncos um, and the Nuggets. And and like the joke about Denver is you could be in, you know, June, the Nuggets could be in the NBA finals. And if you flip on sports radio in Denver, they're going to be talking about the Broncos. Um, <laughs> that's just how it works. And so I was really um, kind of brought up in a family that was, that was um, very into the Broncos, very into the NFL um, I grew up playing a lot of sports and kind of socializing with people uh, through sports. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I, I, it, it's hard for me to like pinpoint a specific memory. Um, but, you know, as long as I can remember uh, it, those games on the weekends had been kind of a, just a constant presence. Um, and it really reminds me a lot of, of home, um, both nostalgically as I think about my childhood, but also um, that's really my, my connection to home. I live in Los Angeles. Now, what I talk about with my family and a lot of my friends back there are the Broncos, right. Or, or, or our teams. And, and it becomes that, that, um, like living, breathing connection that I have to my home uh, to this day. Identity. We'll go back to this identity feeling. Um, it's funny, by the way, because in your preface, in the preface of your work, of your book, Michael Mulvihill, sorry if I say it wrong, but the most important moments in sports are not happening on the field, they're happening in the stands. That's right. I mean, that's my favorite. It's my favorite line. Um, and I think it's re- it really illustrates why we wrote the book. Um, and, you know, I, I'm a industry practitioner. You know, I'm inside this space. And, and you know, we wrote a book that's really about fans um, in general, and, and it's for the fans um, as consumers. But there's a lot of implications for the industry. And I think that that's the biggest one. And that's the easiest way to encapsulate it is the thing that brings the consumer into this space. The reason that fans engage with the sports they love 
are because of the people around them in the stands, in the living room, not the people on the on the field between the lines. And that feels counterintuitive to people. People want to um, view this this world, this universe, this product as an entertainment product, but it's really a belonging product. And there people are buying belonging. And I think that insight right there just sort of shifts how we as people inside the industry should approach what we do. Okay. Again, before going to the book, sorry, I, I was a bit quick, but before going to the book, you work at Fox Sports. You've been there for almost seven years. You're a senior vice president of strategy. Uh, strategy can mean a lot of things. <laughs> uh, what does it mean in your in your own words? Uh, to understand your professional job, and then we go to the book. Sure. I mean, strategy, the, the thing was, I, I like strategy because it's a nebulous term. It's also kind of annoying because it's a nebulous term. I mean, really what I, the, the way that I define strategy is the ability to um, recognize and leverage competitive advantage. Like that That's the idea. I use all sorts of different inputs to help me formulate the the insights and then ultimately the the strategies that we would put into place. Um, but, and they can come from, you know, from everywhere. It can, it can be, um, you know, intuition, uh, but, but more often it's insight kind of backed by uh, some pretty rigorous research that helps us arrive at some conclusions. And then at, at a certain point, you have to take a leap of faith and you have to kind of utilize your intuition to, to make sure that we're thinking about things in the right way. I mean, the, the data can only tell you so much at a certain point you have to figure out how to read it and then what to do about it. And that's really the art of, of strategy at that point. So it's all about building a competitive advantage based on knowledge and insights from data. Um, who do you work with? Because, you know, many people working in strategy or research in companies, uh, first, your own, your first client is your internal client. Who are you most working working with? Is it sales department? Is it marketing? Is it, who, who do you help? I mean, the, the way I view my job is my clients are the internal people. I, I really don't have external clients. Um, as such, and the insights we try to bring to bear kind of across the across the company. And so I would define that as production, uh, as marketing, <clears throat> as communications, as sales. Um, but it's also about how we program things, how we schedule things, how we think about the future. Can we see around the corner? What does the uh, our portfolio of live rights look like today? What should it look like in a few years? Um, and so there's there's sort of a you know, a sense that we're trying to establish insights and expertise that then can be leveraged across the across the company. And that requires you to sort of think in those people's shoes and sort of help them do their jobs. Um, but there's an art to that, like that that becomes a, um, you know, it, it's about selling ideas at that point, selling thinking. And, you know, you're only as good as your ability to sell in those ideas. Yeah. And, and, and one of the big challenges, I would suppose, is to define the right challenges to solve. Or because you know all the different areas of the company may may have needs, uh, but then you have li limited time and resources. How do, right. you, how do you define what you work on? I mean, it's 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 really about relationships and kind of understanding where the momentum lies, where the emphasis lies, where um, are there the most opportunities to to win. I mean, sometimes that that's presenting to you in in the way of a specific opportunity. A lot of times it's like, where are we challenged? Where are we struggling? How can we improve there? Um, can we put some more more uh, thought behind our performance in, in certain you know areas? And you know, at the end of the day, you're sort of looking to your colleagues, you're looking to the industry to kind of read the tea leaves and figure out where should I be spending my time? Where you know where where do we need to go? 
you know, I'm lucky enough to be fairly autonomous in my role at Fox Sports. You know, it'd be easy if someone was saying, hey, you got to go do this, right? Um, oftentimes, it's trying to trying to like, you know, it's like Wayne Gretzky said, it's like, you know, you want to you want to skate to where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is. I mean, that's that's really the way I think about it is we're trying to be where uh, the industry is going. We're trying to be where the company's going and make sure that we're ready to go uh, when we find ourselves in those positions uh, with sharp insights, with with points of view that matter, uh, with the ability to synthesize all of that stuff into a sellable strategy that helps people make a difference in their day-to-day jobs. So right now, at this specific moment, what are the few challenges you're working on? I think we're working on, you know, I, I work for a linear broadcaster. I think one of the things we're 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 wrestling with is just the state of consumption um, and how we utilize certain metrics to define the health of the business overall, which um, aren't necessarily indicative of the actual health of the business. So like in a, as an example, I think sometimes like we kind of default to Nielsen ratings and the demographic profile of the Nielsen audience as our picture of of who's watching what. And while that's true, um, it's not the perfect indicator of where engagement lies. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of hand wringing right now around, you know, the next generation of fans. Uh, are younger fans watching? Are they watching differently? Are they gonna are they gonna be there in the same way that that the the sort of present adult generations are? You know, I I, I think part of what we're we're struggling with is we have metrics that are set up that that used to be the reliable indicators that maybe aren't the same reliable indicators today. And we need to sort of catch everyone up in terms of how they think about consumption, how they think about the fan, um, how they think about how these things inter interrelate um, so that we can, in, in some ways, kind of assure them that the, 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 you know, the consumer, the fan uh, will be there and will continue to be there in the, in the same way. Um, and that we're also sustaining that, that sort of cycle of fandom so that we continue to have people grow into their fandom as they get older. Um, so that's that's like one kind of like overarching challenge. Um, that's part of what kind of drove me, not that we want to get to the book yet, but part yeah. of what drove me to to the book. I mean, there were some methodological things we needed to do to suss out how we think about fandom. How do we talk about fandom? Um, how do we measure fandom? Um, how do we think about it holistically in the way that people actually experience it versus just as producers of TV content uh, or digital content or whatever that content might be? Let's think holistically about consumers as consumers. Um, and how they navigate the world. And then let's use those behaviors and attitudes to define who we're talking to. And then we can get a truer picture of the health of the business and, and, and sort of the direction of fandom. So your book is very linked to what you do. It's all about understanding the fans. So why is the house? Um, you wrote it with David Sikoryak. Sorry, again, if I spell it wrong, very French accent. Uh, <laughs> so why did you decide to spend two years of your life Aside of your work, which is already a lot of time and energy, uh, you know, to to share your knowledge. Well, I think you know we arrived at some insights that that are that are big ideas around the notion of how fandom works, um, what drives fandom, what drives people to engage, and the deeper we got, kind of down that that rabbit hole, um, the, the the smarter we got about you know our our, our hypothesis. I think we started to recognize that this story while beneficial to the business while you know basically just taking my my day job and translating it from a powerpoint deck to a you know prose um is really about having people fans regular everyday fans recognize what they're already doing in their lives the impact the positive impact i should say it has on their lives and then you know exhorting them to lean into that fandom 
right? Like we we actually started off with the book project writing like a op-ed to the industry. And where we landed was a, a love letter to sports and a um, basically a creed to fans to say, fa- fans, embrace your fandom, lean into your fandom. It's good for you. It's good for others. It's good for society. And that's a journey we didn't necessarily expect to go on. But at a certain point that we reached a tipping point on the um, that notion of it being really about the fans and getting fans to recognize that this is what their fandom is doing for them and saying, okay, that's, that's a book that, that, that needs to be um, a, a story told differently. And so let's tell it in the right, the right way. So in a way you became, you started from being a strategy analyst and you became an advocate for fans. Absolutely. And we use that word in the book, you know, we use the word advocate, we use the word evangelist. You know, we had this moment where we, the scales fell off our eyes and we actually saw fandom for what it is. And we had a new framework for how we understand this behavior in our own lives, just very personally. Um, and once you realize your fandom and your engagement with sports for what it is, once you once you just recognize that leaning into the LAFC game and your LA your LAFC fandom and your MLS fandom overall is creating this network of, of connection. It is manifesting in text messages, in you know, parties with where friends come over to watch the game and go into the bar and go into the game and bringing your kids along. All of this stuff just creates connection. And if we see it for what it is, we'd recognize it as something profound and not something fatuous and obnoxious, uh, which is often the, the portrayal of fans is the face painter and the obnoxious bro in the stadium um, who's maybe had one too many beers. Um, when we when we frame it in those those sorts of terms, we miss it for the profundity that it, that it actually brings. We miss all the connection that actually happens in the stands. And we wanted to draw people to that connection and say, this is this is really why you're engaged. This is the positive impact it has on your life. And so do more of that. Yeah. Um, but let's go to the beginning. Um, one of the questions, and you have this question in your book, why are fans fans? What is the psychological phenomenon that you, be, you become a fan? It's unconscious, I would suppose. Uh, but but at the end, it brings a lot of benefits. After we'll speak about the benefits. But why at the beginning, be, what are the triggers that make people become fans? So there's a lot of ink spilled on this topic. And there's a lot of academics who are very smart, who've done a lot of work around notions of identity and the desire for people to want to stand out and our tribal DNA. And there's there's a kernel of truth to all of those those things. And so I don't take issue with, with any one of those things in particular. But my hypothesis and my theory on on fandom is that it's effectively a, a flywheel, right? And a flywheel is is simply, uh, you know, the, like it's a there's two variables x and y, and they feed off of each other. So x influences y, y then in turn influences x, and so on and so forth. The flywheel starts to spin. That that sort of positive feedback loop is the thing that drives fandom. So if we put it in in uh, you know fan terms, what happens is you lean into your your fandom, right? You do something. Um, as a fan, right? And, and that somewhere, somewhere along the way, unconsciously, you're introduced to this stuff. The, the, the result of that is social interaction, typically positive social interaction. That social interaction incentivizes you to lean into more fan activities and more fan engagement, which only creates more social interaction and so on and so forth. The flywheel starts to spin. This is the real reason. Uh, that people lean into their fandom. When we talk about fandom growing or or declining, what's happening is that flywheel is either incentivized by more social interaction and so thus spinning faster, creating more energy, or the opposite is happening. Because we can the the flywheel can also fall victim to the negative feedback loop, right? Where less engagement 
creates less energy and it gives us less urgency to watch. And that's why we kind of fall out of love with a certain thing. Um, I would argue kind of coming back to that idea that it's about what's happening in the stands, not what's on the field. Anyone who says, well, the, the ratings for XY sport are down for these reasons. And it's because the sport's boring and the games are too long and the scoring's gone down. Those things, again, they might have some, some impact here, but you're missing the real reason why people engage. And that's the social uh, interaction. So that is complex because if you if you understand that his hypothesis that being a fan is loving the social interactions and all the diversity and the openings that it gives you, if you're a sports organization, if you're um, a media company, uh, if you're a sponsor, you need to understand that. But then then you go to the how can I provide more social interaction? Uh, to you know, to increase my business uh, ultimate goal. Um, not easy to transform an insight to a solution. That's right, and I, I, I think part of why it's so difficult is because this necessarily requires you to take a long term view of the 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 marketplace. Right there, there is not necessarily a short term solution to this problem. And that's because of the way fandom operates. Fandom takes time. You're socialized into it. You create that network of connections. That's the thing that keeps you connected to the sport. Um, you can't do that overnight. And it's it's just the the reality, the nature of the beast. And I think we oftentimes, you know, in these in these hallways, in these rooms, when we're having these meetings, we want that instant solution, the thing that's going to make the change next year. And I don't know that there are simple solutions to this to this issue. I think. We need to think long term about sustaining the marketplace, about sustaining kind of this ecosystem that that we have with fans, um, because that's that's the thing that will keep us around as a business for a long time to come. Um, we can you know squabble over you know with the impact that you know in Major League Baseball bigger bases might have, right? And it could maybe have some some marginal impact. We can get rid of the shift in in MLB, and that might have some impact on scoring, which maybe juices the ratings a few percent here and there. And then we can say, hey, great job. We did it. Um, the product's in a better place. You know, I'm all for improving the product. I'm all for making those changes. And I think that there are, um, you know, are, are smart ways we can we can ensure that the product is the highest level it can be. But we should also just recognize that it's not about that product. That's not why people are engaged. And that's not going to pe- keep people coming back for more. We need to make sure that we are thinking long term about how we sustain this kind of consumer marketplace for the long haul. This is quite different from m- what most people think, because <laughs> most people, mo- if you you mention MLB, uh, mo- most sports organizations think, "How can I make the format of the game quicker, more entertaining, uh, more drama uh, to engage the fans?" So that it's going to be more audiences or more, 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 more. <laughs> but you said something which is more long-term and a lot more about, and you correct me if I'm wrong, about identity. That's right. And there are things we can do. Like, Don't get me wrong. There are things we can do to, to sustain this, um, th- this sort of long-term play. And there are tactics and, and steps we can take tomorrow to make sure that we're we're safeguarding the long-term future and health of all of these different sports. Um, but it is a long-term play. And what we're trying to do is make sure that m- more of our league partners, the way that we think about it internally, thinks about the 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 business in this way. Um, so as to not make short-term mistakes. And and I think that it's making sure that we have this long-term view and just kind of keeping that time horizon 
um, long. You know, again, it's not we don't want to be we don't want to miss the forest of the trees, but we just need to make sure that we're we're thinking long term. And when you think long term, you think about demographics and you think about gen new generations. And I mean, people will read your book and highly invite everyone to read that book. Fantastic. Uh, but there are tons of different fans, tons of different profiles. And when you think long term, you may want to think about new generations. How will I get them in the game? How will they become fans of my property more than another property eventually? Um, what do you see? Do you see some potential conflicts between profiles and actions to be taken? No, I actually think that I, I would actually push back a little bit on the way that 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 frame that was that was framed because I it's one of those myths that we sort of busted along the journey that we've been on for the last several years writing the book. Um, people typically in the industry think of baseball fans and football fans as separate from. Uh, NASCAR fans and so on down the line, right? Mm -hmm. And now we all know somebody who's just a baseball fan. Like that person does exist. But in general, this is the same person that we're talking about. The core fan of the NFL is the core fan of Major League Baseball, is the core fan of the NBA, is also the core fan who's driving consumption of daily studio shows and sports talk radio around the country. It's really the same person, the same profile that's doing all of those things. So I would actually put forward maybe a more provocative thought, which is to say, these various leagues would actually benefit from increased fandom and participation and engagement in the other leagues, right? In other words, the NFL stands to benefit from increased MLB fandom and vice versa. And so I think if we think of it, again, more as this holistic ecosystem where people are participating in all of these different leagues, they're really fans of all of these different things. And they're just getting, you know, they're building that muscle of how to be a fan in different contexts throughout the year with different people. Um, but it's 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 really the same thing. It's the same like reliable recurring rhythm of fandom. I, you know, I think that that's really the 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 thing that drives the power of the whole ecosystem. And we shouldn't think of it so much as in the you know in these silos in these verticals um, that are you know sport by sport, team by team, league by league. But really to think of it as the core fan is the core fan is the core fan, and more just generates more. And and we should all stand to benefit from that. Does it mean also going more actions, more crossing patient points? Uh, to make things relevant, um, I will rephrase because it's interesting what you say. You say it's the same people, same profiles in some ways. Uh, so, does it mean you want some would be interested in the entertainment part, in the drama part, or some would be more interested in the statistic part and the deep knowledge? How how would you define these different profiles? Well, I would say everyone's in, interested in the entertainment, like. Mm -hmm. the, the let's not dismiss the entertainment value of sports entirely. It's just not the thing that drives people to engage ultimately, but it's one reason why this stuff is the fact that it's so compelling is one reason why it has so much social currency and, and, and really drives these connections. So they're, they're all interrelated. It's really just about like, what do we prioritize? How do we define the, the business that we're in? Um, and, and so there's different people that would like different types of content, Certainly, like that that's true. And I think once you kind of get underneath that that layer of like MLB fans versus NFL fans, we just get to here are core fans. Like that's how we define it, high value fans, right? They tend to to be fans of multiple sports. Um, they they tend to consume a lot of different content a lot of, across a lot of different platforms, right? Now they might have different needs. 
they some people might want more um you know hardcore analytics some people want might want more human interest stories we should be providing content that serves all of those interests um but we're as long as we're segmenting at that level where we recognize that, that this core fan um is a group of people with diverse content tastes that's that's a healthy place to be thinking of them as like MLB fans versus NFL fans and those two groups of people wanting something different that's just not a very useful way to have the conversation that's good okay um in the last years an industry that has been increasing a lot is the betting in industry uh and you're speaking a lot about the correlation between fans and betting in your book um what what would you like to share with us on this topic i think um well one i think we should just like blow up the the myth of the the better that we have you know i think that there's the current cultural conception of of sports betting is you know it's 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 basically about like mob characters and broken kneecaps and and that sort of thing people like gambling their their daughter's college tuition away on you know horse racing um it's really the demographic profile of the better is actually really stable uh in fact uh sports betters are more likely to attend church service frequently than non-betters right um they they tend to earn more they tend to uh, be more educated they tend to be more employed um so on and so forth so this idea of like the degenerate i think we should try and kind of blow that idea up because it's not actually true to to life um the other thing i would say about betting is it's a good example of the flywheel i was describing it's a good example of that in motion and effectively is you you lay some bets down like that's an activity that pulls you in deep but it also comes with other activities you typically are going to research games you're going to look up games you're going to watch games uh you're going to listen to podcasts about betting and about other games to make your analysis and your picks like all of that stuff just creates a lot of momentum and social capital that you then spend um and these 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 sort of amount to positive social interactions which pull you deeper into your fandom so all activities like betting or fantasy sports is another one that's, that's put in there um they they generate positive social interactions which deepen your fandom. Um so that's that's one thing I would just we should all think about it like that, right? And even though betting oftentimes is portrayed as a solitary activity, I'm on my phone and I'm laying a bet about the upcoming games. The reality is it spills out into a series of conversations, right? And some of them are about betting specifically, some of them are just about the games, but you're having interactions that are created by these these bets. So the the bets might happen in solitary um spaces but they actually are quite social in terms of the the reason that we get into it. Um I guess the other thing I would say now that I'm kind of just running through the laundry list of things that come to mind when we talk about sports betting, the other thing I would I would point out is I think what's most interesting about sports bettors is, is they don't have more friends than than non-bettors. So we looked at avid sports bettors, like avid fans who are sports bettors and avid fans who are not bettors. And there's a, there's about a third of the population who will just never bet and that's that's fine. <clears throat> Excuse me. The avid fans who are betters have about the same number of friends as the avid the, the avid fans who are non-betters, right? So we don't see any like big change in terms of the average number of friends that these groups of people uh enjoy. Where we see a big difference is in the the frequency of monthly interactions. In other words, avid sports fans who are betters interact with their friends much more frequently than avid fans who are non-betters. And that's where we see the impact of betting as an activity, as a fan activity, um play out. You would also see the this in the data if you looked at fantasy players, right? Avid fans who are fantasy players interact more frequently than than avid fans who are not fantasy players. 
fantasy, betting, those sorts of activities create a lot of room for social connection. And we should be thinking of our, you know, the reason people uh, lean into to betting and become betters is because of the social interaction. Like basically you're socialized into it in much the same way that you're socialized into fandom. And I think recognizing the social impact of betting gives businesses, you know, in the sports books, a, a new way to think about uh, their target market, but it also should should reframe how we as a society think about betting, right? Kept within responsible financial boundaries, yeah. uh, betting is a net positive activity on your well-being. Huh. Interesting. Betting in net. So you're very, I wouldn't say optimist because all you say is based on is is based on service, not intuition or <laughs> uh or in yeah, not intuition. But betting is a net positive activity because it does feed the fan will and the social interactions. That's right. That's right. And, and so this is where this, I think the story gets interesting because the you saw, we talked earlier about like the benefits of all the socializing. This is where we get into data around happiness, uh, loneliness, um, confidence, optimism, gratitude, life satisfaction, uh, so on and so forth. And what we find is that fans are happier than non-fans, not because they're fans, right? Or their team wins or anything like that, but because they they have more friends, because they engage more frequently with those people and they value those relationships more, right? And so th- this litany of, of wellness markers is enjoyed by by fans because of all this additional socializing, right? We're social creatures by nature and we're hardwired to sort of live that way. And so the more that we can, we can have those connections, uh, the better off we're going to be. And so we see this play out across all these different metrics, um, but it's also down to things like the likelihood of giving to charity, um, the likelihood to, to have an uh, exercise regimen as part of your kind of normal routine, um, the likelihood of being registered to vote. All those things go up. They're all generally widely, objectively, uh, you know, assumed to be positive things. They all go up with fandom. Would you think the same about esports? Because esports has a lot of meat also, you know, negative thinking about esports, nerds. Uh, in front of the computers alone and so on. Would you have the same thinking on, on esports when it comes to the fan wheel? Uh, generally, yes. I, th- I think for one, that's, that's how it's going to work. Um, the engagement with anything will kind of take, a, take advantage of those network effects. And that's the thing that will sustain the engagement. Um, so, so in general, yes. The difference with, with esports is it just doesn't exist in the same scale. It's not as signalable. It's not as shareable. Right. So if you drop me into a bar anywhere in the country right now, the chances of me being able to generate a conversation with a perfect stranger because of the NFL are extremely high. Right. The same cannot be said of esports. Uh, and the same cannot be said of, you know, Game of Thrones. And like those almost seem like unfair comparisons. And that's kind of the point. Those big sports exist at such a scale. It's just, it can sustain a lot of what sociologists call weak tie interactions, interactions with perfect strangers, right? And those are actually really good for us as well. So, in the esports world, the 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 you know the the hardcore avid fans of esports are likely to have a network of people that they connect with specifically about esports. That esports become the anchor, the galvanizing force of that relationship. That will likely to be the same thing that sustains that that fandom. The issue is it doesn't have the same sort of knock-on effect. The momentum isn't as big because you don't get um, people walking by down the street, you know, and saying, you know, go Dodgers, um, as I do when I wear my Dodgers hat in LA. And and that doesn't happen with with the esports in the in the same way to the same degree. Now, could it happen over time? Absolutely. And then yeah. would it enjoy the same network effects? One hundred percent. Yeah, maybe one day we'll see 
kids in the street with a G2 uh, Riot Games uh, hat. Absolutely. Understood. Understood. Um, being a fan, it's all about creating the benefits of a sense of belonging. Then that has a lot of consequences on people's identity. That's right. those are of your great topics. Right. Would- so this this is where we get into polarization. Is that is that where we're where we're going here? Yeah. And so yeah. we, you know, we, yeah. we so far I think the the story makes a ton of sense. Fans have more friends. Um, as a result of that, they enjoy a lot of wellness markers. They're less lonely. They're happier, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, where it starts to take a turn is when we think about fandom as as identity, um, and that can impact polarization, right? And so there are a lot of demographic markers that that push us into various um, sort of partisan camps. I, I'll say, um, and so, and and this is this is sort of like widely accepted now that we are at like our most divided time. It's it's we're 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 extremely partisan. Um, there's nothing but enmity and vitriol for the other the other side. And what we found is because fandom can rise to the level of of identity, right? Because people will name their their dogs and their kids um, after their favorite sports teams and players because they'll tattoo themselves with the sports franchise. It obviously can represent something that that rises to the level of identity, and as a result of that, it can have a uh, a dampening effect on these this polarization problem. So we looked at it um, using what sociologists call a, a temperature reading, right? Like a thermometer scale. And effectively, we just asked people, you know, Democrats, how do you feel about Republicans? And Republicans, how do you feel about Democrats? And we asked them to rate that on from zero to 100, zero being cold, 100 being hot. The warmer, the more positive. Uh, Fairly simple. And what we found is that when you look at fans, um, if you're an engaged, avid fan, um, you're going to have warmer feelings for the other side than non-fans, right? And the, the, the rationale is uh, because fandom rises to the level of identity, it effectively displaces some of the other identities we have working that would be more aligned to, to sort of partisan feelings, uh, m- makes our identity, our social identity more complex. And that has a dampening effect on how we feel as, as partisans. Um, now, to be clear, like we're we're starting at low baselines, going both ways. Democrats don't like Republicans. Republicans don't like Democrats. Right. But we're seeing something move. And and we're seeing um, um, that positive movement, and we should read that as a sign of hope. Um, there, there's a way out of something that feels intractable, and we should also recognize again that sports has this incredible power within our society that we can lean into as a tool that can not just solve you know problems of loneliness, but actually problems of polarization. Problems of polarization that goes that could eventually lead to using more sport for. Uh, diversity, gender equality, and topics uh, that matter to society. Yes. And it's also just what we find is that attitudes towards those topics um, improve with sports fandom, right? Like the baseline among Republican fans about gender identity, for instance, is quite low. But if you you follow the the way the chart works, if it goes from non-fans to low-value fans to mid-value fans to high-value fans, and we see a stair-step in terms of their warmth to those ideas, right? It's a way of opening people's minds and, and sort of broadening people's perspectives around all of these really difficult to talk about issues. Um, and, and you know, one of the reasons, you know, we talk about identity as one of the reasons, but the other reason is just coming back to that notion of scale, you know, it's just contact with other people. If you are a sports fan, you will naturally, if you're a fan of the Dallas Cowboys, you are naturally going to encounter conversations, environments, situations with a multitude of people, Right. Because the Dallas Cowboys and fandom in Dallas 
uh, going to Cowboys games cuts across a wide swath of society, right? So if you go to that game, you're going to see people of different ethnicities. Um, you're going to see people of different religious backgrounds, socioeconomic um, backgrounds, so on and so forth. It's that contact alone naturally has a broadening impact. It, it makes you uh, sort of uh, open-minded about the world. And, and really, that's that's one of the positive effects of, of, of sports fandom. That comes back to that idea of scale, but really it's about broadening perspectives, changing people's minds. And that's where we come to this uh, this line of, you know, being a sports fan is good for you, good for others, and good for society. That good for society point, you know, that's not that's not hyperbolic. Like we actually see that in in the data and we should all just recognize the power that this thing gives us. That's right with the fans. That's also right with the people practicing sports. Uh, one day I interviewed uh, Arsene Wenger, former uh, Arsenal GM, big guy in sport, fantastic coach and manager. And he was telling me how he had to adapt from the beginning of his career to the end of his career. Because at the end of his career in a team, you could have 15 nationalities, um, Blacks, Asians, Whites, different religions, <laughs> different mindsets. So in one team with one identity, you had a multitude of ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. That's right. So we, we actually tell a story about this in, in the book where we have this, this character named, named Sean, who we met in, in research. He lives in Los Angeles. Um, and he goes to this, he, he's a, he's a, he's a young black man. Um, he's dating, uh, a, a white woman. He goes into this cafe. He is prepared to have a negative interaction with these two old white men who kind of give him a, give him a look when they walk through the door. Um, they both ask him if he is a, a player, if he plays in the NFL, cause he's a, he's a big kind of bodybuilder type. Um, and he starts to have a conversation that unfolds that, um, you know, over the course of the, the, the sort of lunch with his, his girlfriend, his girlfriend's like, why are we, why are you, do you know these guys? Why are you talking to these guys? And what's interesting is, you know, from Sean's perspective, you know, he first would tell, tell the story as, you know, it was good to kind of give these guys a, the portrayal of, of sort of a, you know, a positive portrayal, a positive interaction with with a young black man. But what Sean ultimately arrives at is that story, that interaction with those people, he was defensive. He was prepared for something that he would be, you know, assume would be kind of a racist or, or, or fraught, tense interaction. Actually, was really fun, right? He had a good time. When he's telling the story, he kind of he's elated, and we call that out. And he says, "Yeah, I mean, I it changed my perspective too, right?" And it kind of works both ways. And and it's just that interaction it doesn't have to be in the stadium, doesn't have to be in the stands. It can be anywhere, anytime. We can talk sports, and that coming together um, can can introduce you to new people. And and just, you know, Brene Brown has a line that we always use when we talk about this. It's hard to hate people up close. That's the power of sports. That's what sports does to you is it puts you up close with people. And then all of a sudden it's hard to to hate those people. And you have it changes your conception of who those people are. Hmm. Now, your book is going to be launched uh, on the 15th. It's already on pre-sale. Um, where can we find the book first? Anywhere you buy books, it's it's available um online amazon barnes and noble target um those those usual big hitters cool how did this book change the way you are doing your work now or and or i would say how did it change the way you see your life that it's actually the the latter question that that's easier for me to answer um <laughs> it because it changed how i do a lot of things in my own personal life you know i was maybe falling out of love i have, I have two young kids you know i have a job i'm trying to write a book um, you know, you're a busy, you're a busy person like we all are. And I was sort of falling out of love with the pick and pools and the fantasy leagues, you know, the watch parties, all those sorts of things. 
And this really made me realize how important those things are, right? They seem juvenile. We get together, I get together with some college buddies and we go do a fantasy football draft weekend, right? That used to seem like a waste of time in my mind. Now I see it as, oh, I'm actually going to connect with my college buddies. Um, I wouldn't see them otherwise, if not for this fantasy league. That's a positive thing, right? Um, I make sure to always send the text message about the team to whoever it is on the other side. I will always do that now. I'll make sure to call my dad before every Denver Bronco game, right? We're going to talk about the Broncos, but it's naturally going to spill over into a conversation about um, my kids, his job, my job, my mom, so on and so forth. All of that stuff is really positive. I guess I would I would also say it's made me want to pass this down to my kids, um, which I think is maybe the most important implication for 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 myself, but also for Dave, the, the co-author, is making sure that, that that we're giving this tool of fandom, this this sort of social engine of connectedness that, that fandom is, we're giving that over to our kids because it's really important that they can leverage that in their own lives. Uh, we've done some research recently with, te- with teens just to sort of test that proposition out. And sure enough, um, amongst a 13 to 17 year old cohort, um, if you're a bigger fan, you're more likely to have more friends. You're more likely to have a positive perception of yourself. You're more likely to be able to cope with anxiety and depression better. Um, and so all of those things are, are positive and things that we want to make sure we turn over to, to our, the next generation. Um, so that, that it's really about, it's been a personal impact versus a professional impact, uh, more so than anything else. I love what you said, social engine of collectiveness. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a beautiful motto. Um, that's a beautiful motto. Um, to end the podcast, we have a ritual, um, which is inspired by, uh, well, Marcel Proust. Uh, and it's a series of quick questions for quick answers. Ready, my friend? I'm ready. Your favorite all-time athlete? John Elway. Denver Bronco quarterback. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If I have my first my first memory, it's the the Broncos winning the Super Bowl in 1997. Um, and just being in a household full of people who were just losing their minds, and it was fantastic. Even as a French, I know him from that time. <laughs> Uh, what is your favorite event? My favorite what? Event, sport event. Oh, uh, the World Cup, hands down. World Cup, football World Cup? Oh, the football soccer World, World Cup. Cup. Yeah, the soccer World Cup. Um, yeah, no, I, it's uh, an unbelievable moment of positivity in the divided world. Um, I think we, you know, we think of it as a big uh, entertainment event, but it's really about pluralism. You know, we talk to consumers about how they, why they engage with the, the World Cup and they say it's a nice form of nationalism. Um, those ideas like really translate and and travel for me. And uh, I'm a big football fan already, um, but to sort of see it elevated to the world stage like that is is really fantastic. Interesting. Because for this kind of uh, why to that answer, I would have thought about the Olympics. Similar, similar idea. I'm just not as interested in in sprinting. I'm more interested in uh, in the football. <laughs> cool. What is your favorite word? My favorite word. Yeah. I think it's build. I think, or, or, or something to do with like sort of generative. You know, I, I find myself kind of like constantly curious and chasing things down. And that's been, I know, kind of the thing that's dictated my career. But it's just like this idea of kind of like constantly building something. You don't even always know what you're building. I mean, that's been the story of this book is we, we, we just, you know, sort of started to follow our nose. Um, and all of a sudden we were putting, you know, words on paper that we didn't ever think we would be uh, writing. And things just kind of have a uh, have a way of you know revealing themselves to you. So um, if you if you're curious, if you're willing to put in the work, and you you know are are constantly trying to build something, I think um, you know you'd be surprised what you can do. 
What does a prof- what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oh, I mean, I'd love to be a professional footballer. <laughs> 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 the idea of being, uh, you know, 27 with plenty of disposable income living in some uh, European capital sounds pretty appealing. <laughs> <laughs> what profession would you not like to do? Um, you know, anything that would be a little too routinized and, uh, you know, too stuck to, um, you know, producing some sort of product. I think the thing I like about my, my job is, um, the autonomy to be curious and to follow the curiosity and see where it goes. And there's pressure there because you have to be comfortable with ambiguity and you have to deliver something. Um, but just the ability to kind of go where your nose takes you and uh, always be curious, I think is, is, is incredibly fulfilling. And so anything that would not do that, I think, you know, being an accountant probably would be uh, the thing I would want to avoid. If you had one more hour every day, what would you do? I'd probably, I'd probably be on my bike more. I'd probably be surfing more. I'd probably be doing more uh, of those things where I can, uh, you know, be outside in the world, um, you know, engage in some sort of physical pursuit uh, in a meditative place and, and uh, you know, just kind of enjoying my surroundings. But um I don't know. Hopefully my, my family doesn't listen to this and say, well, I, the answer was obvious that I should be spending more time with them, but I'd love to be, mo- be on a bike or a surfboard more often. No editing, no editing. <laughs> uh, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Here's two tickets to the World Cup final. <laughs> so the so 2,100 World Cups. World exactly, Cup. exactly. God willing. Cool. Ben, thank you so much for sharing with us. Uh, congrats for the book. Um, I will share in our social media, obviously, all the link, all the links on the book and yourself. Uh, thank you for sharing so much and enlightening so many people in the sports industry. And I would say way beyond, uh, because as you say, uh, it goes way beyond sport. Um, so yeah, let's keep in touch and congrats. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you all for listening to a new SIS Masters podcast. We'd love you to subscribe. Please leave a review or rate the podcast. It will help us improve. We'd love to see you in the next episode. Enjoy. Enjoy.